The title of this uh, session is called The Rise of Non-Denominationalism and the Tabernacle, 1910 to the Present. President Woodrow Wilson began his first term in 1912, just prior to the outbreak of World War I. That's the setting. The backstory of the tabernacle goes back a few decades before we were started in 1943, but some of this will help set the, the frame of reference for the interest in starting a church with the characteristics that we hold. Uh, he began his first term in 1912, just prior to the outbreak of World War I, uh, prior to being the Democratic nominate, nominee for the presidency, uh, Wilson had been president of Princeton University for eight years. According to Robert M. Sanders, Wilson was laying a groundwork before he even arrived in the presidency, a groundwork for the modern welfare state. Uh, he, in one of his books that was published uh, called The State, he, he wrote this, that charity efforts should be removed from the private domain and be made the imperative legal duty of the whole. So what he was doing was trying to move the, the individual responsibility out of the private affairs and bring it into the public corporate uh, national affairs, uh, a lot of churches didn't necessarily have corporate giving programs. They instructed their congregants to be benevolent on an individual basis to people in their sphere of network. So, in other words, like we have a benevolence aspect in our budget. Um, people would give of their own resources to um, people that were around them that had need. Uh, they had a different... Oh boy, I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail here if I'm not careful. They had a different funding mechanism at the turn of the, the revolution. Churches were funded by taxation. Uh, there was public excise taxes that were designated for the care of the minister and also for the school. That was just... So people already assumed that the church was taken care of out of their own taxes, and on a private level, they would engage with, with uh, benevolence needs around them. Uh, particular to Wilson, he was a post-millennialist. He believed that gradually over time, society would be redeemed and changed in such a way that the kingdom of God would descend as technology... Um, education and the regeneration of systemic social ills were reformed and changed, um, and he adopted a very progressivist agenda in the name of Protestant Christianity in America. Um, the outbreak of war in Europe in the First World War caught American theological liberals off guard they were on the ascendancy and their platform of progressive politics was such a short thing that when war broke out, they didn't know quite how to react and they tried to rebrand it as the war to end all wars. Uh, it was a devastating rebuke for the optimistic post-millennialism of Woodrow Wilson. After World War I, premillennialism began to ex accelerate throughout America. And the progressive agenda of Wilson, though, I think is a good example of the influence that theological liberalism had uh, within the power of the state. Um, at the beginning of the 1920s, um, when Wilson came to the end of his term, prohibition became enacted in the U.S. Constitution. And it seemed like this was like we're finally arriving, and we've had this set back by the war, but we're starting to reform America in such a way uh, that perhaps even Christ might return. Uh, but not all things were going well uh, in the denominations as theological liberalism was having a devastating effect upon the morality of the nation. The 1920s is called, uh, <clears throat> was a, a phenomenon in the youth culture uh, you've heard the term flapper. 
perhaps, in the Roaring Twenties. Um, it was not a moral, uh, there was not a moral imperative in the pulpits in the decades prior to 1920 that would, that would guarantee that the church would be what it should be in the world. And that was largely due to pastors who were coming out of seminaries who were discrediting the authority of the Bible. Uh, they were introducing theological liberalism, so they, schools like Princeton Southern Seminary, Rochester Baptist Seminary, Colgate Seminary, Chicago School of Divinity were all undermining the authority of the Word of God. So you have a youth culture growing up hearing that there's mistakes within the Scriptures, and so therefore they don't necessarily have the moral imperative to live as they ought to live as growing up Christian. And a whole generation started to embrace a very immoral uh, lifestyle. And of course, during the 20s, there was all kinds of underground, um, what were they called them, um, speakeasies, places you could go to find alcohol and that type of thing. And no denomination or institution remained untouched from the theological liberalism. Um, uh, for instance, <coughs> sorry, I do have a water here today. Through the 1920s and the 80s, most professors at the Southern Baptist Seminary uh, held to theological liberal views, and we mentioned that last Sunday. So this is kind of a precursor to the establishment of what would be called historic fundamentalism. So I'm going to give a couple a definition and talk about the origins here. Any questions so far? <coughs> while I clear my throat. So a definition. What is historic fundamentalism? It refers to the conscientious assent to the infallibility of Scripture and a willingness to contend for the faith once, once handed down to the saints. It also refers to a period of time in which there was a widespread solidarity of evangelical leaders focused on reforming the denominations to try to get them to be what they ought to have been. And they began to become more aware of the damage that theological liberalism had created in the church. Now the word fundamentalist, or the word fundamental, comes from a collection of articles written in the defense of the historic Christian faith. These articles were published between 1910 and 1915, and they were written from all over the world. There were articles that were being submitted from Montreal, from Toronto, from Germany, from London, from Scotland, Texas, Philadelphia, New York, and these collected articles were attempting to be apologetic to say, look, we can have a trust in the Scriptures. The arguments of the theological liberals, they appear impressive, but if you examine them, they really don't carry enough weight. And all these articles were collected, and uh, 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 two men by the name of Stewart, last name Stewart, Lyman and Milton Stewart, spent $200,000 of their own money to have three million sets of these articles put into print and sent to, as, to three million pastors, seminaries, churches throughout America. The title that was given to this four-volume set of articles was called The Fundamentals. Um, and that was through the years of 1910 through 1915. There was a prophecy conference that was organized in 1918 in Philadelphia, which became a forerunner for a group of concerned Christians. It was called the World's Christian Fundamentals Association. Cortland Myers was a pastor from Tremont Temple in Boston. Uh, 
very, very close to the center of Boston, Tremont Temple. You'd be probably familiar with it potentially, a Park Street there, just off the main course there. He was at this conference and he announced at the meeting, he said this, listen carefully to what he said. The abomination of abominations is the modern religious world that is ripe, rank, rampant, rotten, new theology made in Germany. The theologians have torn the Bible to shreds and trampled it beneath their feet like scraps of paper and thus substituting, substituting for real Christianity and the principles of the gospel of the Son of God, the law of survival of the fittest, with the result now manifest on our world, the tidal wave of barbarism, savagery, and immorality. Did you catch that? all of that? I liked his alliteration of four R's. Uh, ripe, rank, rampant, and rotten. Uh, he recognized that the theology that was coming out of Germany was destroying America and the churches and denominations. During this time period, four major voices rose to prominence, those of T.T. Shields in Toronto, William B. Riley of Minnesota, John Roach Stratton of New York City, and J. Frank Norris of Fort Worth, Texas. And they perfected the ability to communicate in mass to mass people in their cities. For example, John Roach Stratton, there's a picture of him uh, on top of an old Model T Ford, and they had built a platform on the front of the, an elevated platform on the, on the Model T, and uh, they have him standing on that like a pulpit in the streets preaching to crowds uh, in New York City. Um, but these men became very adept at communicating the, 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 the true gospel, and uh, they became leaders, and networks were being formed to respond to the new science of Darwinism and the theological liberalism in the seminaries. Now, during this time period, there were a lot of turmoil in a lot of the denominations. I'm not going to talk about each denomination in particular. I'm just going to talk about the Presbyterian Church as an example. This, this pattern was repeated throughout the Methodist Church, through the um, Presbyterian Church, Baptist Churches. Um, but there was turmoil. We're going to look at the Presbyterian Church of the USA. 1922... Harry Emerson Fosdick had published his book that I mentioned last Sunday, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He was a liberal. And during this, during this time period, a strategy was to try to unseat these liberals from their place of authority within the denomination. For example, Clarence E. McCartney, who was pastor of Arch Street, Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia published a reply to Fosdick saying, and it was titled, Shall Unbelief Win? So shall the fundamentalists win? No, or shall unbelief win? And so they were publicly going to battle with one another to raise public awareness so that in the conventions, in the General Assembly, they might be removed as heretics from their pulpits. McCartney with William Jennings Bryan lobbied the Presbyterian Church in, in, at their General Assembly in 1923 to condemn Fosdick's sermon and instruct the Presbytery of New York to be conformed to orthodoxy. They identified five key things that they needed to come into line with. The whole Presbytery of New York was accommodating someone who did not believe in inspiration, someone who did not believe in the Incarnation, did not believe in the Atonement, did not even believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ, or any of the supernatural powers of Christ. And they said, if you're going to ordain people, they need to subscribe to these things. And the General Assembly put this into motion, and it was voted overwhelmingly at that 1923 General Assembly. The condemnation that this brought to the New York Presbytery created a counter-offense. And in 1924, the year following, a division was starting to occur between McCartney, who led a coalition to form these five points that there was necessary 
On the other side, Charles Erdman of Princeton Seminary became the banner for an alternative way of dealing with these conflicts. Charles Erdman was a conservative, and he was theologically conservative. He was even a premillennialist teaching at Princeton. He was a contributor to the Articles of the Fundamentals, but the difference was is that he lacked a militancy to deal with the theological error. Erdman did not want to create conflict within the denomination, and during the General Assembly, uh, Fosdick was voted to be eligible to return back to his pulpit. And the result was that, in the end, Fosdick used it as an opportunity to say, no, never mind, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to join the Baptists. And he resigned his pulpit and joined the Northern Baptist Convention. Shortly after this, the fundamentalists began to lose ground culturally. 1925 became a watershed moment in the process of decline of influence of fundamentalists in denominations. 1925, a trial took place in Dayton, Tennessee, where a young biology teacher named John Scopes had, in defiance of a new law in Tennessee, began to teach Darwinian evolution in his classroom. It had been outlawed. And the ACLU got involved and defended John Scopes, and Clarence Darrow was, his, was the defense attorney. William Jennings Bryan, who was involved in the Presbyterian assemblies, began, became the a prosecuting attorney for the state of Tennessee. There's actually a movie about this back that was done in the 1960s. Have you ever seen um, Inherit the Wind at all? It's actually a very, a very well done 1960s drama of this uh, whole experience. Um, Brian won the court case because it was indefensible in the end that the guy was teaching evolution and the law said you couldn't do that. He won this case, but Darrow won the battle in the press. And Darrow made Brian look like an anti-intellectual fool who didn't know where Cain got his wife. Made him look like he didn't know where this great fish came from that swallowed Jonah. And Brian was forced into some pretty extreme ridicule. You might remember from our last lesson that Dr. Bob Jones Sr., recalled the conversation that he had with William Jennings Bryan in 1924, Bryan had said, if the schools and colleges do not quit teaching evolution as a fact, we're going to become a nation of atheists. And so the Scopes Monkey Trial, as it's called, was a wake-up call for many evangelicals to give recognition that while they might win legal battles, the cultural battles had already been lost. Those who had grown up in churches preaching a false gospel had already embraced the alternative Darwinian gospel to the true gospel. And the Scopes, uh, in 1925, coming back to the Presbytery, Charles Erdman was elected the moderator of the denominational meeting for that term. J. Gresham Machen, who was also... Presbyterian, insisted that Erdman's rise to prominence was not a matter of personalities, but one of doctrine. Dr. Erdman, Machen said, despite his personal orthodoxy, had the plaudits of the enemies of the gospel. They looked at, so people like Charles Emerson, or Harry Emerson Fosdick, and other liberals looked at Erdman as being a, a puppet that they could use. And Machen says, those who were trying to peer for the denomination bore the reproach of Christ. They laid aside all personal considerations and stood for the defense of the Christian faith. And despite a conservative like Erdman being voted in as the moderator for the assembly, they had enacted a censure of the New York Presbytery. They were required to review the credentials of anyone who requested to be ordained and make sure that they were to affirm the five points. It might have worked, but something dramatic happened at that convention 
Just like the monkey trial, it became like a show. A, a, a minister from New York, whose name is Henry Sloan Coffin, rushed the platform and read a prepared statement from the Presbytery of New York declaring the National Assembly's acts as being unconstitutional. Erdman, sensing the crisis, stepped away from the moderator role and stepped down so that he could personally make a motion. And he made the motion that instead of enacting the censure as the General Assembly requested, that they would take time to study the problem that was occurring. And the motion was accepted by a vast majority. It was seconded even by William Jennings Bryan and also seconded by Coffin. And in the coming year, the motion was killed in committee. And it never actually went forward. And in the early summer of 1925, this was the signal that all the effort in, inside the denominations was not going to affect the changes that were necessary. And people began to realize that their ability to affect change was slipping away. In the fall of 1925, shortly after the Scopes Monkey Trial, you remember Jones and his wife were driving, driving through South Florida talking about the need for an Orthodox university. It was at that time that he gave recognition to the need to go and establish a university that would provide a haven for students coming from homes that didn't want to be exposed to theological liberalism. So this, this brings us to a need for a new strategy, for a new era. That's this post-Scopes trial where, where the effects of those uh, true believers were ineffective in the press. And from 1925 through 1930, saw a rise of new approaches. 1927, Bob Jones College was founded. Westminster Theological Seminary was founded in 1929. And by 1930, liberalism was clearly at the helm of most of the large denominations. And they were, of course, significant numbers of conservatives in some of those denominations still, but they just didn't have a voice. They had no way to kind of pull the, the levers of power to direct the ship. They were donating to missions programs, but they really had no say of, of who was being recruited as a missionary. Would they have the true gospel going with them? And so from 1930 through 1950, a sub-movement started to take place. It was called the Bible Conference Movement and constituted a major voice of opportunity. Um, you know, um, we had some Bible conferences that are pretty famous in our general area. How many have ever been to Montrose Bible Conference before? All right, Phil. All right, Jim has. Uh, Spruce Lake was also a Bible conference as well, um, in Pine Grove. And uh, all of these conferences provided a venue for public proclamation of truth. And instead of going to conventions, a lot of people would instead spend their time going to these Bible conferences. Um, Moody Monthly Magazine published notices of scheduled summer conferences. They said that there were 88 conferences meeting in 27 different sites in 1930. By the time 1941 came, that figure rode to over 50 sites. And uh, Winona Lake is also one of those conferences that is pretty well known as well. And through the years, their voice, um, the voice of conservatives were not being listened to by denominational leaders, and this created an impetus to start to break away from denominations altogether. And here we come, long but last, to the Independent Fundamental Churches of America, the IFCA. Uh, there was a precursor group of people before the official IFCA. From 1923 to 1929, there were a cluster of churches in Iowa and Nebraska who formed a loose affiliation, and they called themselves the American Conference of Undenominational Churches because they wanted to get rid of the denominational structures that had created all these problems to begin with. 
uh, the levers of power and knowing how to do the politics in the, the, the national conventions and, and sessions. They just didn't want anything to do with that. Uh, and so before we were known as the IFCA, we were the American Conference of Undenominational Churches. And at that time, it was mostly a collection of congregationalist churches that did not want to be associated with the theological liberalism that would become known as the United Churches of Christ, the UCC. Um, and they were organized in 1923. Uh, they wanted to have an uh, 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 independent fellowship that was totally free from any modernist tendencies in the denominations. Uh, they had a publication that was called The Pioneer of a New Era. It was a newsletter that created con connection, uh, sharing news of what was going on between sister churches. Um, in September 20, 1923, churches from 10 different states were associating, and they had determined that they were never ever to become a denomination, nor would they let any member churches retain a denominational title like Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, or Congregational. Uh, they held six annual meetings um, until a reorganization meeting occurred just outside of Chicago at Cicero Bible Church in 1930. Um, Cicero, Cicero is, is not far today from the inner core of Chicago between Downers Grove and Chicago. It's about maybe halfway between those two points. Um, but during this period, 1930, um, we became known as the IFCA, and membership was growing from 24 members to over 150 member churches by 1929, and it was growing and reaching out even into Canada. So in 1930, this, this uh, a reorganization meeting occurred at the Cicero uh, Bible Church, and in the February issue of Moody Monthly that year, there was a following. There was a question that was posed. A lot of a lot of people subscribed to Moody Monthly, and the question was: Has the time come for fundamentalists to promptly and literally obey the emphatic command given to believers in Second Corinthians six fourteen to eighteen, Ephesians five eleven, Second John nine through eleven, and that that is to be separate, to come out from among unbelief, and to not walk, have light walk with darkness. And a total of 114 delegates from 12 states gathered and answered the call to come out and be separate. Four delegates came from Canada, and in June 24th to 28th, 1930, um, they held this conference. They had prominent speakers that were scheduled to speak at major sessions, they had representation from Denver Bible Institute, uh, Philpott Tabernacle, Hamilton, Ontario, uh, Wheaton College, Evangel University, and Articles of Faith were drafted at this time. And I think this is important to note. When they were drafted at that time, they simply included the phrase, the personal, premillennial, and imminent return of the Lord Jesus. And at that time the organization was changed to the name was changed to the IFCA. Now, the historian for the IFCA has said that the only significant change that has been made to the doctrinal statement there were, you know, statements about scripture, statements about the virgin birth, statements about the resurrection, atonement, all of that was there, but he said nothing has really changed except they made an additional statement on dispensationalism, that is the rapture of the church. But at the founding of it, they had a generic statement regarding uh, the second coming of the Lord. The 1937 convention uh, made the motion as well that the IFC on record is not teaching what is commonly known as ultra-dispensationalism. And then it was in 1979 that finally a statement on dispensationalism was put into the statement of faith. IFCA, how many, how many partnering churches do you think there are today in the IFCA? Eight. 
in America and Canada? 250? Raise that up to 1,000. Um, and actually, if you increase the affiliating churches, not official members because they're not in America and Canada, in 26 countries, that number goes up to 3,000. And uh, we have 1,000 additional individual members who are pastors and missionaries as well. So it's grown through the years. Now, I want to get to our church here, um, but I want to also say that there are different views on the purification of the church that were being espoused during that time period. We had the fundamentalist approach, which was to separate from the, separate from the denominations. Some people said, it's good for us to stay in and fight and keep fighting and try to use the systems that are here and to restructure and reorganize this thing. Um, <clears throat> this, uh, the second approach, which is to stay in and work towards reversal, was successful in some respects for some of the seminaries, particularly in the Southern Baptist Convention. I had said that 1920 through 1980, many of the major denominations were liberal, and that was true of the Southern Baptist Convention. But gradually over time, in the Southern Baptist Convention, there were thousands and thousands of churches that were still very conservative. They figured out a way to begin to win votes and get trustees who would then appoint conservative uh, presidents to seminaries, and the conservative presidents began to recruit theologically conservative professors. So today, there are five Southern Baptist seminaries, and four out of the five are theologically conservative today. And so I think it's helpful to know that there are different strategies in play. The challenge of separating and coming away from denomination is that you lose all the endowments that have been made through the years. You're starting from scratch, and it takes decades to be able to to have some sort of institutional structure that everyone will support. And so there are risks and rewards for every decision, and I'm not going to say that one is necessarily better than the other. I will say that if you attempt to stay in and make the changes, it's going to be difficult, and you have to know why you're staying in to do it. You can't just go with the flow. You have to militate against it. Um, over the years... Um, different viewpoints on how we do fellowship have evolved. Um, and I want to bring to our memory Richard Gregory. Richard Gregory had a view called um, uh, thinking through our levels of fellowship. And so he had encouraged fundamentalists in his circle, IFCA circle, to consider partnering on areas in which we can find agreement so Catholics, for example, we can find agreement with Catholics on uh, pro-life issues. And so that's, it's not wrong to fellowship in those settings. It's not wrong, for example, um, to think of humanitarian needs in my community and partner with a group that is focused on some of those same things. The Episcopalian Church is a theologically liberal church in Honesdale. I don't know if you've seen some of the stuff they've been putting out lately about LGBTQ uh, evening dinners and that type of stuff. Um, I definitely do not partner with them at all on any of those things, but if they have care and concern for those who are homeless, I'm okay with that. That's something that I can work with them on that particular item, but not all this other junk. Um, I would not, though, be able to share the same pulpit with him. That would be very difficult. <laughs> We could not find agreement in that area. Another approach is advocated by uh, Albert Muller, who is president of the Southern Baptist Convi uh, Seminary in Louisville. He talks about theological triage of taking individual church doctrines and evaluating them, giving preference for gospel-rooted things. Things like eschatology or end-time views maybe not as high as importance. And then maybe even things, how we celebrate communion may not be as high as how we think about the gospel itself. 
or even what kind of music and convictions that I might hold personally. And so thinking through how can I associate along doctrinal lines. Billy Graham um, really stirred the hornet's nest in 1957. After World War II, evangelical Christianity began to return to public prominence, and its best-known voice was Billy Graham. He uh, was a very good preacher. He um, connected with people well on television. Um, He created a network, a national network, in which he could advance evangelical campaigns. Um, Graham had grown up a Southern Baptist, and he had also had some time with the Southern Presbyterian tradition. This may not be well known, but he trained at Bob Jones University for a, a semester or two, and then he went to Florida Bible Institute, and then finally Wheaton College to finish up his degrees. He was taken in under the wing of Dr. Bob Jones Sr. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. looked at him as if he were a son that he could mentor and kind of push the, 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 the evangelistic uh, flame into another generation. Uh, many conservative Christians, though, became alarmed in 1957 when Billy Graham invited to his pulpit in New York City theological liberals that the previous generation had been fighting and invited them, giving them equal place on the platform. He even invited uh, Eastern Orthodox priests to come and bless the the stage and platform with incense. Um, And uh, it created a lot of consternation. In fact, uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. and Jr. were the first to separate from Graham largely, I believe, due to the offense that had created. Uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr. had lost a lot of friends in denominations that had gone theologically liberal, and Billy was then erasing the distance and distinction. And so it caused a lot of anxiety, and it was uh, quite a blow for many, and people began to create a sense that we need to, like, not associate with people who associate with the theological liberals. There's a lot of debate as to um, how necessary that position is, but I can understand where it had originated and arose. So 1943, we are the tabernacle. We have come into birth during this time period. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about our founder, Ross William Ross Pizarro. And if I have... If there's others that want to add details here, it's fine. Um, you can just jump in here whenever appropriate. Some of you have lived history beyond myself. So I'm just looking at stuff in our church office. Um, but Reverend Pizarro was born in Dunmore. He was the son, listen to the name of his, his parents, Vito and Mecca. I had never heard of Mecca. Is that an Italian name? Sounds almost like Islam or Muslim. Uh, But Vito and Mecca Pizarro, uh, during a time of illness, he was led to saving faith by Dorothy May Brink. She was a graduate of Scranton School of the Bible, and she later became his wife. That was Dorothy, uh, his wife. Uh, Reverend Pizarro graduated from Moody Bible Institute in Chicago one of these hubs of, of attempt to distance from theological liberalism. He studied voice. He was quite a musician. Um, he's, I could mention some of the names of people that he worked with closely. We probably wouldn't know who they are. Uh, but he did take hymnology and composing of hymns under George S. Schuler. I don't know if, Marilyn, if you would know Schuler's name or not. Do you? Okay. All right. Um, he studied for a time at Lafayette College in Easton, PA, and he studied voice and conducting with John Warren Erb of New York University. He taught conducting for one term at Hyde Park Institute in Scranton, and then he was the director of music at Three Rivers Bible Church, Michigan. As I was reading this, I was thinking, I was thinking of Drew. Drew is like in that same orb of like, you know, maybe God will call Drew into ministry someday too. We'll see. But then he was the minister of music at the First Presbyterian Church in Texas. 
He traveled also as an evangelist until 1940 when he moved to Wayne County. And in Lake Ariel, he founded, if I have this correct, the Union Church. The Union Church. Um, at one time, I think the name changed to Open Bible Fellowship. Maybe, as according to documents I was looking at. Um, but he had a vision while he was founding this church, the Union Church, he had a vision of establishing an independent fundamental witness in Honesdale in the county seat of Wayne County. From his vantage point, and he was right on the mark, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Baptist Church, and the Episcopal Church in the town core had stopped preaching the true gospel for at least 30 to 40 years. They had been gifted pastors who had graduated from theological liberal institutions. And so he sensed, as a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, the need to hold meetings in Honesdale to bring the gospel to the town seat, uh, the county seat. <coughs> so the founding years of the tabernacle, uh, we began May 26, 1943, with six weeks of special evening meetings. After the meetings, Reverend Pizarro continued to hold Sunday afternoon services and a midweek service for young people. In November 1944, uh, Pizarro resigned from the Union Church and then moved to Cliff Street. And then eventually in 46, they, he lived in Sealyville. And meetings were being held on the second floor meeting hall of the Honesdale Hose Company Number 1 on Main Street. That's not the one that burned down, was it? Where, where exactly on Main Street is that? Honesdale 1. That's, okay, that block near Laurels. That's why I thought it, there was a burned section that burned down. Kinsman's, that's right, on the other side. Right. Um, after several months, then the meetings were moved to the Bentley Building on 734 Main Street. About a year later, meetings were then moved again to the second floor of the Dolitsky Building, 823 Main Street. That's where Arts Apparel is. Arts for him and her is there. It was at that location, uh, Mrs. Pizarro conducted a Phi Gamma Fishers Club as a youth ministry. Mrs. Pizarro also established Good News Clubs, and she founded Child Evangelism Fellowship in Wayne County and served as its first director. Later, she selected Johanna Posuma to become its director. Uh, May 29, 1945, the Tabernacle was formally incorporated as a religious organization under the laws of the Commonwealth of PA, and it had five corporate members who became the church board. Oh, I do, but I didn't include them in my notes for today. But I could get those... Um, the purpose of the corporation, the stated purpose was the propagation of the Christian principles through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, including the use of radio broadcasting. And so from the beginning, it was a, a work that was a faith ministry. And when a special need developed, funds were low, the tabernacle in that day would gather together for all-night prayer meetings. Uh, praying until assurance came that the need would be met. They would take some breaks and kind of hear testimony of the group to say, do you think this is going, has the Lord answered our prayer, in your opinion, even though it, the check hadn't come in the door, so to speak? And they would just kind of, you know, pray until there was a collective sense that God, they were at peace and that God would answer their prayers. Uh, letters were occasionally sent out from time to time to those who are friends and supporters of the work, um, offering opportunity for them to give gifts towards the ministry. Uh, and as the records in the office state, uh, somehow the funds always seem to come in to meet the need. Uh, for the example was given, Mr. Albert Snyder, an early board member from Waymart, sold his dump truck, and they used the money to purchase Tabernacle's first uh, PA system off the sale of that truck. June 5th, 1946, Tabernacle purchased 
a house at 814 Court Street, and the house was converted to have an auditorium on the first level, classrooms on the second floor, and some back area for the pastor's residence. And it was uh, the following year, in 1947, that the tabernacle became an IFCA member, and uh, we have the charter. It's located in the hallway just outside the church office. 1948, Tabernacle Bookstore was opened on Court Street, and it was operated by Reverend and Mrs. Pizarro, and they carried Bibles, books, devotional books, Bible commentaries, gospel tracts, and then when the Tabernacle later moved to the old hospital building, one of the back rooms was, was given over for this purpose. In the 1950s, the Honesdale Gospel Tabernacle offered coursework. Maybe you don't, some of you might not realize this. They offered coursework through Moody Bible Institute under the direction of Reverend Pizarro. Uh, and, and also, in spite of his personal convictions regarding the rapture of the church, Reverend Pizarro was generous in his association. For example, when he arrived back in the area in South Canaan, he was surprised to learn that his college friend, William Lowe, was pastoring Berlin Bible Church in the area. Uh, they had both attended Moody Bible Institute, which was a premillennial, dispensational, uh, pre-tribulational rapture institution, but William Lowe had taken a post-tribulational view of Christ's return. And Reverend Pizarro, when he returned and found his friend from college, made sure to include Pastor Lowe in association meetings with other churches in spite of their differences on the Lord's second coming. Uh, the Dimmick Building, which is our, was the old hospital, 1952, Tabernacle Corporation bought the old Wayne County Memorial Hospital, uh, corner, Court and Ninth Streets, for $30,000. At that time, the Tabernacle lacked only $1,000 for the down payment on that property. Uh, Mr. Will, Will Collins, unaware of the need, had just sold some property and donated $1,000 to the tabernacle. And it was just exactly the amount that was needed. And at that time, um, they sold the property on 814 Court Street, and they sold it for 15000 And then that became Peck's Nursing Home after it was sold. And it had been Pastor Pizarro's dream to have the gospel preaching church in the center of Honesdale. It looked like that dream was being fulfilled. And the purchase of the hospital provided with that opportunity. Um, Reverend Pizarro retired from the pastorate of Tabernacle in 1977 after 34 years of service. And so we get into more current history and we get into the subsequent pastors and we have John McAndrews and Stephen Young who come, uh, Anthony Rafa, Pastor Williamson, Pastor Gregory, Pastor John Banks, and Associate Pastor Jeremy Yeckley. And we moved up to the hill. I think it's important to, to highlight how God has provided through the years because when the need was in hand to build this structure, the county was approached with the possibility that they might buy their facility, the old Wayne County Hospital, and all of the funds from that sale that were generated and a lot of sweat equity of people involved in the construction of this church provided for a debt-free erection of this, this facility. And God provided um, for quite generously through those years. Um, so Stephen Young began his ministry at the church as it was growing. 1992, average Sunday morning attendance was 139. And in 1989, new constitution and bylaws were ratified. And no, he came in 85, but in 1992, the average attendance was close to 140, 139 range. And on April 10th, 1989, a new constitution and bylaws were ratified, and then growth led the membership to look to move up here. Um, Pastor Anthony Rafa came. Uh, he had a short tenure, but the church caught a vision for missions and being the lighthouse on the hill. Uh, there were 
short interim pastors serving, James Price, James King from BBC and Seminary. And then in 1997, Pastor Williamson came with a focus on missions, which took the church to go into <coughs> pretty significant locations to help build churches throughout the world. Um, India, for example, Ukraine, uh, Philippines. There was quite a lot of activity in those areas, and I'm probably missing a few others that, that were also gone to as well. Uh, MOPs began during that time period, and uh, in 2000, through cooperation with Project Jerusalem, we partnered to plant Cornerstone Bible Church. And then in 2009, Pastor Gregory came, and uh, those were the twilight years for Pastor Gregory in his ministry. Um, he probably didn't realize how close the Lord, it would be that the Lord would take him, but he was instrumental. We changed the name at that time. That was a long period to be Honesdale Gospel Tabernacle. And even when I came, people were still calling it the Honesdale Gospel Tabernacle. And, uh, and then, uh, obviously, we changed to Tabernacle Bible Church, and it takes time to get used to a new name. And uh, something also significant that occurred during his time period is that he, required, he, he encouraged the congregation to, to require baptism for membership. Up to that time, based upon historic undenominational distinctives. There was willingness to take in people who had infant baptism as long as they could verbalize a personal testimony of coming to faith after infancy. Um, but in time, I guess Pastor Gregory felt that it was necessary to make that change uh, to bring it to a, more of a Baptist uh, instinct. January 1st, 2012, Pastor Banks was installed, and then in 2021, Pastor Jeremy Eckley was installed as an associate.